it's recording. Okay, um, I've got my mind going in too many places. Let's let's start. Um, any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? Uh, can you hand, can you hand me the abolition? Is it there? Would you say a prayer of thanksgiving for Jonathan's diagnosis? Yep, yep. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of this day, for the gift of yourself this morning at the Mass, and for your words to us. Um, do you remember the... It was Isaiah in the first reading. Christ was the man who was lowered through the roof. Oh, yeah. The readings have been from the beginning of Advent. Um, the Old Testament readings are generally from Isaiah. They've been those wonderful readings about leveling the mountains and raising the valleys to smooth away so that we take away those things that are overdone, I think, reaching too high take away the valleys, the narrows, the, you know, the holes, so that we are walking level. Uh, we take away those extremes. And in this morning's um, gospel reading, it's the story of um, the friends helping the guy on the litter through the roof to be healed and Christ saying, which is, it, which is easier to do to forgive a man's sin or heal him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are around doubting everywhere and um, he God, he heals them. He says first of all you're you're forgiven Your faith has made you whole and then he heals him and tells the man to get up and walk off and the Sadducees are outraged because they know that only only a God can forgive and Christ has pardoned the man's sin and healed him so during this Advent, Lord, um, strengthen us in our faith. Help us to have the courage, really, the depth of faith to come to you, to be healed, all of us, um, so that we can walk again as we should um, in a wholeness with you. Increase in all of us um, a spirit of faith, hope, and charity. Those are all supernatural virtues. They ask us to do things when we don't have reasons for doing them. Um, but always in some way that brings to completion something in the natural order. Health, justice, goodness, all those things we long for, um, help us to bring to them those supernatural helps um, without which those things in the natural order can't be done. Our walking right, our efforts to be just, um, our health, um, strengthen us, please, in our faith that we can um, come to you, genuinely believing um, you can heal us. We ask a special blessing on those in need. I ask a special blessing on Sue and her family, whatever, whatever she carried on her heart this last week and does tonight. Um, and um, a special prayer for Christopher and Thomas and our own family. Particularly Thomas, 
help quiet his heart, um, help both of them to grow closer to you. Let it be so for all of us. Um, we offer um, our thanksgiving for Jonathan and the good news about the the lump in his lymph node, um, um, the the news that there is no threat there. So we are grateful for that. Um, I ask a special blessing as we go back to visit this ancient world. This ancient world has got you everywhere in it without seeing you, but in the work that we're going to do here before Christmas, this is interesting, before Christmas and then after, has to do with real horrors um, that you took away. Um, help us to see the truth of these dark things and always remember that, that um, you came to answer them, to put them away. So help us to face these things, to see them truly, um, and be strengthened in our efforts to turn to you to answer them. So we offer all these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. The poems, I'm, I'm going to read. It just struck me tonight because I was doing the um, Philomela myth when I, that I sent to you guys in our blog. And I was reminded of a poet that I wouldn't have remembered except for that myth, although she's somebody that I should have included a long time ago. I'd like to read a couple of poems by Jay McPherson. She's a, um, a Canadian poet. She's written a collection called Poems Twice Told. It's exactly the title you could give to Shakespeare, or even Dante, but Shakespeare for sure, because every one of Shakespeare's plays is a twice-told tale. None of those are his creations. He took all of his plays from plays that had already been rewritten and rewrote them. Um, it's a reminder that we don't create anything entirely new. Only God did that. But... Um, the, the best of our creative efforts come when we take something from the past that we've received and let it speak for us in our age, that it, it can reveal something important to us in our time that would have been different from um, an original audience to the poem or the work, whatever it was. So her poems are called um, Poems Twice Told, and there's two sections in it. One's called The Boatman, and she's referring to Noah and making of the art and passing off. And the second collection is called Welcoming Disaster. She, to me, she's a, a really brave woman, really brave woman. All the poems are short. I will, I will um, try to copy some. They're hard to copy, but I'm going to try to get some. I, I included one tonight that's in our collection on the line, so you can go on web and get it. It's called the um, No Man's Nightingale, because she's talking about the um, Philomela myth. In fact, it's the rubric, the um, epigram, epigraph, to her uh, whole collection. They're all very short, and some of them are witty, very sharp-edged, very sharp-edged. Um, but she's an important poet in the modern world. I'm, I'm regretting that I haven't turned to her sooner. I should have, but, but it was appropriate tonight because of what we're dealing with in, uh, in uh, the Agamemnon. So I'm going to read two of her poems. This is the rubric, the, the one that stands outside the whole collection. So she's speaking in her own voice 
concerning all that she's going to present in this collection of poems. It's called No Man's Nightingale. And remember in the Philomela myth, um, Philomela wanted to visit her sister and, and her husband went to get her, um, Tereus, and raped her sister, or no, she, her sister Procne wants to see her. Um, Tereus, the husband, becomes lustful and rapes um, Philomela and tells her not to tell anybody and she refuses to obey him and he cuts out her tongue and she can't speak. Um, but she weaves into a tapestry the story of what happened, sends it to her sister and her sister sees, Procne sees it. When she sees it, she takes her son, this is all in the Agamemnon, or, yeah, in the Agamemnon um, kills her son and feeds it to her husband. So without knowing it, her husband eats his son. And um, when he discovers it, he pursues the two women, threatening them with their lives, obviously. And the two women make a prayer to the gods, and the, the two women are turned into birds. And one of them is a nightingale. So Philomela is transformed into a nightingale. She sings um, and what we hear in her singing is a lament. And I've said this before from the beginning, it's probably something most of you won't even remember, but you know, when we, when we start out with Homer and, and there was anything having to do with, uh, with the uh, bird watchers, the prophets, remember in the Iliad, it was a, in all of the works, it was a big thing. The, the prophets looked to the birds because the birds were closer to the gods. So learning to read the birds was a way of learning to read heavenly things. And the reason for saying this right now is because the myth will come up in the Agamemnon. But I told you then that I'm not aware, I'm not aware of a great poet who has not written poems about birds. Shakespeare, Dunn, Robert Frost wrote several, Yeats, you could go, Elliot, you could go on and on. Um, because the bird was an image of the poet. You know, we've, we've been talking about poetry as prophetic, that it's, it doesn't belong with other fields of knowledge, that something's being given through poetry that we can't get anywhere else. The poet is a, is a singer of div sometimes divine things. So it's no accident that she, she starts this collection with this rubric, this poem outside the whole collection that, that points to it. She's speaking of herself as a nightingale, um, singing songs that offer us words from the gods. Okay. So this is Jay McPherson. I've included this song on our blog. I'll, I'll include others with it so you can have a a sampling of her poems. This one's called No Man's Nightingale. Sir, <laughs> sir, <laughs> no man's nightingale, your foolish bird, I sing and thrive by angel finger fed. And when I turn to rest, an angel's word exalts an air of trees above my head, shrouds me in secret where no single thing may envy no man's nightingale her spring. She's not going to just speak what men want to hear. This woman is going to 
speak things that have been given to her fearlessly. Let me just read it one more time. Sir, no man's nightingale, your foolish bird. I sing and thrive by angel finger fed. And when I turn to rest on an angel's word, exalts an air of trees above my head, shrouds me in secret where no single thing may envy no man's nightingale her spring. She is no man's nightingale. She is going to be singing another song. Um, here's the here's a copy of the you know her, it's a very small collection. The, remember the first half is called the boatman and it's really her the major theme governing all the poems is Noah in the boat. So they're all multi-layered. They're 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 very contemporary, speaking to contemporary things, but she's she's seeing them through the image of Noah gathering people into the boat before the deluge, before the flood. And if you if you're putting that together with the name of the the title of the second half, you'll you'll see the point. The title of the second half is Welcoming Disaster. She's dealing with things in the modern world that show that we're on the point of something not good. That um, we're facing something the way Noah did then. That things are getting so bad. So. Um, Here's a poem called Leviathan. I'm going to just read this just to, um, because the poem, is, the poem is short and I want to give you a sense of her. It's called The Leviathan. Now show thy joy, frolic in angels' sight, like Adam's elephant in fields of light. There lamb and lion slumber in the shade, splendor and innocence together laid. <coughs> The Lord that made Leviathan made thee, not good, not great, not beautiful, not free, not whole in love, nor able to forget the coming war, the battle still unmet. But look, creation shines as that first day when God's Leviathan went forth to play, delightful from his hand. The brute flesh sleeps and speechless mercy all that sleeping keeps. It's a beautiful celebration of creation. So, okay. Um, um, let's take a couple of minutes with C.S. Lewis just to finish it off. I'm going to read a couple of passages to remind you of the conclusion he's come to. Remember, in chapter 1 he was making the point that the modern world has been encouraged to a subjectivist mindset. That comes from the Protestant world <clears throat> that makes the private will greater than anything else and the modern idealist tradition that begins with Descartes. Descartes the one that says, I think, therefore I am. So he makes the thinking person the center of everything. Um, the, the, the condition of being so it's the individual thinking person and the ideas that he holds in his head that determines everything. <clears throat> We're disconnected from the body. That's the effect of the Cartesian world from our senses. We see things through the ideas in our heads. So um, it's just another way of encouraging, encouraging a subjectivist way of approaching our world. Kant followed that up. The whole modern world is idealist in that sense, philosophically. 
So there are two, and science adds another. Lewis was, um, was responding to the effects of that way of looking at the world, particularly as they play out in education. So in the first chapter, he takes the example from these two men who, who use the example of um, Kohler's waterfall. So if, if we were to say what that man was, what he did was despicable, what those men were saying was, um, um, the feelings I have about what that man did are despicable. That we, we're not saying something about the world outside of us. We can't make any objective claims about it. What we're really doing is expressing our own feelings and projecting them out. That's one of the tendencies of the modern world. In the second chapter, he makes the point that um, we, we cannot make um, judgments of value on the basis of science or these modern philosophies, and it leaves us no way of dealing with moral problems. Um, and he goes on to make the point that the axioms that we all grow up with are reality itself. So obeying your parents, do unto others, I mean all those things um, are reality itself. Those are starting points, self-evident things. If you look for something beyond them to justify them, you won't find them. In the third chapter, he makes the point that, um, that because we've made, let me call it reality for, for the sake of simplifying things, because we've made reality a fact of observation now, we treat it just as we treat any other thing. So it's no longer the Tao, the trunk, um, um, the, the natural law tradition, or what God would have called God's order or the way. It's that we make everything um, a data, a piece of, a datum of reality. Um, and we treat it like everything else. We can use it, manipulate it, because the whole effort of modern science is to use our knowledge to get some mastery over nature. That goes back to Bacon. He's the forerunner. He's the one who says that the real aim of sciences should be to master nature, make, us, make it serve us. So Lewis takes three examples, the contraceptions, the airplane, and the wireless, to make the point that every time we think we make an advance over nature, as a matter of fact, we end up becoming more subjected to it. And I just want to take a few minutes to just look at that closely and then wrap this up and get on to East Coast. He uses contraceptions, the, the radio and the airplane, and basically he's saying the more that we, let's say, the, the more that we depend on an airplane or a car or, because I know of people who have robots in their homes now who say, or who press a button and say, um, Alexa, Alexa, <laughs> do this. And suddenly something's done and we don't have to do anything more. So we've got these sound systems and robots serving and I think they're actually sexual prototypes now where I mean you you know this extends it every aspect of our life. By the way Bob Kapecki's not here but Bob sent a, um, a video to Suzanne he's constantly sending things to her and he said terrifying and Suzanne described it to me at dinner it's a it's a video of, of a couple dancing in perfect harmony and Suzanne's comment what it she 
Bob said, watch the video before you read anything. She watched it and she said, it was lovely. The couple's doing something. She didn't think anything about it. And she got to the end and read about it. And what she discovered when she read it is the couple were both robots. So what Bob was sending was a, what, I mean, obviously nobody could told that. To all appearances, they were human beings, but they were robots. I'm sorry he's not here tonight. Um, so we've created a world, let's say, with Alexa, who will do things for us. And the point that Lewis is making is the more that we keep depending on others to do things for us, the more dependent we become on them, the weaker we become ourselves, the more we become dependent on other things to do. So that's his basic argument. I just want to look at a couple of things to wind this up to see what your response is. And let's just take three of them. Let's take contraceptions because it's a given in the modern world. Is there any way in which contraceptions illustrate or support Lewis's concern? I know it's a controversial subject, but let's, let's take a few minutes with it. I want to get this out in the open. Fred, you've got a mischievous smile on that face of yours. When I see that, for my first impulse is <laughs> calling him, and and the other half of it is be careful because, <laughs> come on, Fred, what's, let's hear it. I'm not the guy to ask. Remember, I'm the math and science guy. Oh, don't, come on. <laughs> don't tell me you've got a thought on this because I know better that you don't have a, what am I doing? Anybody? Anybody on this? Tracy? Anybody? I don't remember exactly. It seems like if it, I don't remember if it's he was talking about uh, the future generations. Um, uh, let's see. I don't know if this is related to that. Can't remember. Go ahead. No, no. Something about. Um, he kind of used logic to get it to where the future, the farthest future generation would be weaker than the present. Um, I can't remember all the, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember yeah. the line of reasoning, but it was. I think, I mean, yeah. The, controlling their outcome by the decisions that we're making. Right. Yeah, that we're going to limit or, or in some way shape or determine what's going to happen just by choices like that. I, let me just put it in a more practical, I mean, see what your response is. Um, because the, 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 the increase in abortions in the last, let's say, 50 years, 60 years, I don't think is an accident. We didn't have, or at least not to our knowledge, the kinds of numbers that we have today. And we certainly didn't have agencies or... Um, structures that were in place to um, help with them. You know, they were always opposed, they were always done in the dark. Um, if a person uses contraceptions to, as a way of preventing birth, um, I mean, is it fair to say that the more he learns to depend on those, the less he learns how to restrain his own sexual desires? because he never, has to, he never has to practice restraint. If he's got a contraception, he can pretty much do what he wants and not worry. If, if the man or woman is 
um, has not protected on any particular evening, the result may be a child, an unwanted child, and abortion can take care of it. So to me, contraceptions is a really good example because it's it's just one instance of of something that humans use with the idea that it gives them some control over what they're doing. When as a matter of fact, if you learn to depend on it, and I'm, I'm thinking of the sexual urge because I take the sexual urge, I think most of us would agree on this, maybe not, but it seems to me the sexual urge is one of the most powerful in our lives. The more any of us learns to depend on contraceptions, um, the less likely it is that we'll be able to learn to to show self-restraint ourself in dealing with sexual passions. Um, take another, I mean, take abortion. Let's take computer. Um, can any of you see the negative side effects of the computer because the computer, computer has radically transformed our age. It's helped infinitely make communication between people possible in a way that was never true before. Um, it, it makes um, effects of our lives more immediate, more immediately under our control. You know, we can do business with somebody in Hong Kong and, and um, count on effects far more immediately than we could a hundred years ago. So there's so much good to say about computer. In, in a sense, we can say it's helped us achieve some mastery over nature, time and space. You know, somebody in, somebody in Hong Kong can receive something we're sending now. Space is not a problem. Time isn't a problem. So the computer is a perfect example of what Lewis is, is talking about. Is there, are there ways in which our dependence on computers um, has also put us in a position of greater weakness or dependency or vulnerability? I was driving down the street today and on campus and I saw a, a father and his son on the sidewalk and both of them, his son was young, like maybe, I don't know, third grade or something, young. And they were both on their phone standing on the sidewalk. And, and you see that a lot. People are together, yeah. but they're on their phones. So they're with other people. And so, I mean, just, that separation from the person that you're right with is one weakness, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, and that's gone on for years. It's nothing new. I can remember when we first began, we would walk into a, I can remember walking into restaurants and seeing a couple both on there, you know. I can remember walking into a doctor's office once and watching a mother talking to her daughter while her daughter was, you know, her daughter wasn't paying attention. In, in, a, in, a, in, in as good as it is, because it can transcend time and space, in some ways it it makes it harder for people to be in a moment together. To you know, there's a certain humility in accepting your circumstances where you are. You know, nothing great has to go on, but you're in a restaurant together, or you're in a doctor. But more and more, you see people a lot together when they're not together in that time and space. Um, yeah. Anybody else just? Well, I find that it, it's harder to get away from, for instance, work. It's 
sorry, I turned off my video because the audio is not very good. I'm not sure if this is any better. But you can work 24 hours a day now, especially during COVID. Most people are working from home. I deal with people in Asia, in South America, in Europe, in Mexico. So somebody's always this is part of their work day. And one thing I found with um, the pandemic and people encouraged to work home is people are less considerate of your non-working time. They'll schedule meetings at dinner time. They'll schedule meetings at six o'clock in the morning. They don't think you need to eat lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I actually looked at the the virus as a blessing, um, Karen, because I just thought people would be forced to, you know, have to learn to get along together. But we're starting to see some of the negative sides of that too. I mean, there's negative. You know, I I I just I I wish this would be a grace for our country to. For people to rediscover themselves at home and, you know, make a greater place for each other, because work so often separates people. But um, Sue, go ahead. Well, I had sort of a, a stray thought at the beginning, but it kind of hits more. A computer in and all of its um, uses, not just communication between people has made us much more instantaneous. We want quick answers, we want them now, we can get them now. They may be crap, pardon the expression, but I was thinking about how kids thought Wikipedia was a good source, you know, that, that was a basic source you should go to. And I'm just thinking about knowledge and speed and the time it takes to know something and thoughtfulness and those, we've gotten so that we want everything at a microwave now, speed yeah, or yeah, faster. Yeah. And we don't spend the time to to do research, to think about things, to to consolidate ideas, to look for truth. And I, I think that's a real loss. I think it makes us weaker because we are more susceptible to whoever says it the loudest or the most times or whatever, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. whatever it is. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. And I worry about that. I look at kids, you know, and I think, gee, I used to think I knew what original research is. And, and now it's archaic if you're using an encyclopedia, which I didn't consider as an original source of first place. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, oh. it's like, I don't know. No, you do old. know. You do know. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm so grateful for that. Because, I mean, just to, just to back up that a little bit, um, I have to work at being patient. I mean, it's not something I have to really work at. And I think most of you know, have some feel of how much I love wisdom, that it's one of, you know, in the Old Testament, all the things about wisdom and, you know, in the Old Testament readings, all, all of the things associated, that I think it's one of the greatest things in our lives. And it's one of the ones um, most rarely appreciated you know, because it comes through, I believe it comes through suffering and patience and work and humility and working at things. And the mode that you're describing, exactly, I just, so, I'm so, so appreciating what you're saying. It's so instantaneous. You know, you put a, you put a quarter in a box and you get something back. You go online and you, how much it, it works against suffering, patience, working with, laboring, trusting, 
growing together in time, you know, it, um, th all, of, all the kind of knowledge that comes, you know, exactly with what you're, so yes, yes to all you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will teach you something. My, my one grandson still doesn't speak very well, so he's learned a lot of signs. And James is not a very patient person, so we're trying to teach him this sign, which is wait, and this sign, which is patience. <laughs> so if somebody does that, you can just get a, a reminder. Yeah, one of the things I, I my, our, our Jonathan, our, our youngest, his wife, does some signing language, and, and when, the, when, I don't think she does it anymore. Maybe, my, I think of her as a really patient woman, a pretty patient woman. But she was using sign language with the kids, and I loved it. Because um, the kids had to watch and pay attention for something, and it took time to do that, and they were fixed on it. And I, th I thought, if somebody had to grow up learning sign language, it would cultivate a kind of patience, because you just can't blurt out your answer. You, ha you have to pay attention, because words, we get so used to using them, we, you know, I think we take them for granted. But when you're giving signs, I can't, what was the sign for eating or... You want more? More, you know, that the kids had to learn. To, yeah, the kid, you know, they had to learn to ask. Oh, and because it involved their body, you know. Just the fact that you're using your body slows you down. You know, you have to do that. So, yeah, all that. Anything well, more? Thing, um, computers become a, a tool for cyberbullying. Boy, I'll say. And pornography has gone through the roof, and I know from priests that women are becoming more addicted to pornography. That you know that there's a whole dark side and a billions and billions and billions of dollars of industry with um, what's going on there. So um, here, let me just read because I want to I want to get to East Coast. Let me just Lewis makes a point um, late in the the last chapter of responding to those people who are going to say that what he's doing is an attack on science. And I know this was a concern that we gave a few minutes to last week. I don't want to take a lot of term time with it. I don't think he's, he's um, objecting to science as such per se. What he's doing is objecting to some of the byproducts of what we do and the sort of mind cast that it forms. I just want to, well, here, let me read his lines um, just to finish this up. He says, page 82, nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. I deny the charge. He loves knowledge. He's not attacking knowledge. What he's concerned about is the effect of a scientific mindset on the popular mind and some of its negative effects that we've been talking about. Um, I want to just go back to the one because it seems to me so important when he says 78 now I take it that when we understand a thing analytically and then dominate and use it for our own convenience we reduce it to the level of nature we turn it into a natural thing in the sense that we suspend our judgment values about it ignore its final cause if any and treat it in terms of quantity now I want everybody to hold on to that for a minute because it's really crucial he goes on to say we do not look at trees either as dryads or as beautiful objects while we cut them into beings. The first man who did so may have felt the price keenly, and the bleeding trees in Virgil and Spencer may be far off echoes of that primeval sense of impiety. 
<clears throat> because remember in the ancient world, the gods inhabited nature. So if you cut down a tree, there was a danger of being impious. Same thing in being arrogant when you crossed a river. In a nominalistic world, that's the modern world, only particulars exist, only. There are no universals. So you can cut down trees at randomly and not give it a thought. Um, James Fenner Cooper, and those of you who are familiar with the name, know that he was an early American writer dealing with um, Hawkeye, you know, the leather stocking series. And, and in some of his novels, he's clearly aware of the nominalistic set of mind because it, in what he shows is lumber companies coming in and just tearing down trees when the trees were, they weren't sacred, but there were things that the Indian people had to take care of because the Indians saw the great spirit there. Those of you who remember reading Faulkner's um, Go Down Moses in uh, The Old People, remember when Sam was teaching Ike how to hunt and the, the spirit came out of the deer. None of the hunters saw it. For the modern mind, the, the danger is that we turn things into objects, and when we turn them into objects, we kill them. We control them. Men look at women as objects. Women look at men as objects. It's something all of us do. The danger for us is that we, we make people serve our own interests. So he's saying there's a danger in objectifying things, because the minute we objectify them, we turn them into something we can use. St. Thomas saw the same thing. His answer was, it's only when we learn to love what we know, that object, let's say it's my wife or it's her husband for Suzanne or, you know, it's only when we love that other as another for that person's good that we can protect, you know, what's best in us. Remember the line he said, now I take it when we understand a thing analytically and then dominate and use it for our convenience, we reduce it to, um, to the level of nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignore its final cause, if any, and treat it in terms of quantity. What, what Lewis is reminding us of, the, the whole scholastic Christian Middle Ages would have known. According to that view of things, everything in the world had a telos, an end, a telos, an end. Everything had a final cause. The final cause for man is union with God. To be, it's an image of Christ. Each one of us is an image of Christ, longing to be reunited with God. Once we take out a final cause, and science cannot deal with that. Science doesn't deal with final causes. If you take out a final cause, it gets easier to treat a thing as an object. Every flower has an end. It's to become a beautiful flower. Every tree, every human being has an end. Once we take out final ends and treat things for their immediate practical consequences, we run the risk of demeaning them, making them less than they are. So we treat them as another piece of data, a datum, you know, in our explorations of the, our attempt to control the world to make it what we want. In the last page he ends, he says, perhaps I'm asking impossibilities, perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk. There's that ancient myth again of the basilisk. It's like the Medusa. Remember in Dante, when Dante, 
Virgil turned Dante around, physically grabbed him and turned him around, because to look at the Medusa is to be turned into stone. The basculus kills what it looks at. Perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk, which kills what it sees and only sees by killing. If our habit is to turn in things into objects, we're partly taking away that thing's life. To reduce the Tao to mere natural product is a step of that kind. Up to that point, the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. Because remember, reality, the trunk, the way, the Tao, becomes just another object like other things. If it is, we can keep seeing through it to other things. To keep seeing through those things is to see things beyond them. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot keep seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. Do we see in a flower God? Do we see in a human being an image of Christ? Um, where is there a maker in all things, or are things just objects? The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent, because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. Remember, those are self-evident, they're starting points. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. We end up in boxes after boxes after boxes after boxes, trapped. So, um, his concern, it seems to me, is a very real one. He's a you know, he's one of the, I think he's, I, he's such an extraordinary person. He's one of the great Christian apologists. Um, apologists um, of the 20th century. Um, I, I think his brilliance really shows through here because he's going to something fundamental that's something important for us to think about in our modern world. So, any last comments or thoughts about Lewis before we put him away? No, you all look very sober. Tracy? All I can think of is something you say here in the study guide, like, um, I'm not going to be able to find it, but you said somewhere this thing that I have witnessed over and over again, which is, um, here it is. The more educated people are, the more convinced they are of their rightness. Right. And that you, um, I, I guess what I said last week, it's so true that it's really frightening because it leads to frightening things. And mm -hmm. I think those things are happening and it makes it to where 
we've talked about this in class before too, where where you can't um, have a conversation with anyone about anything, and you can't get to know them each other unless you agree. Cool. You know. Yes. Yeah. And so the people that you know you don't agree with. You know, you still have to work with them. You still have to do, and so you just keep your mouth shut, <laughs> and that's the life you live. You know, which is okay. I mean, I don't need to convince other people of my. You know, I don't need to share. I'm a very private person. I'm okay with being quiet. But it's a weird. You f you start to feel um, ostracized from life. You know, yeah, because wow. you. Yeah. So it's. And and that this was written what in the forties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I guess was this happening in the forties, or is he was he kind of seeing what was going to happen in our time? You know. So it goes on and on. Yeah, and it gets worse. Um, right. When I when I read Chesterton and Lewis, you know, in the forties, I'm seeing what they saw. I, I, it, what we're experiencing is so much beyond what they saw then. I mean, it's the, the world is far darker. I'm going to say something to you. I'm going to. I hope you hear this as a friend. I, I've got a. This is a teacher assignment. I, I can't remember the last time I've done this online with you guys, but here you go. You may not want to talk with me again. I've got an assignment for you. I'm really serious. I've got an assignment, and I. I guess for everybody else too. If if anybody had asked me to characterize you, I would have said you're a quiet, modest. You know you. You love what you do. You are super conscientious. You, you know, all that you did with, um, was it Megan? What was her, what was the young woman's name that you worked with? Madison. You know, all that you did showed a wonderful heart. I mean, you, you were giving a part of your life for this young woman to try to help. So there's this great capacity for compassion in you. And, and I would say you're partly private and you're, you correct me here because these are all my feelings so pardon me if I'm wrong and I hope you don't see me as being presumptuous here because I'm trying to be careful but I, I and I can't see you picking a fight with somebody I just don't see you doing that but I can't believe there isn't a stubborn streak in you somewhere that if you had to hold your ground you would hold it I that's just if I'm wrong correct me but, but here's what I would ask this is I'm saying this seriously as a friend um, who feels dearly about you and you know the fact that you've been around and you take this as seriously as you the next time you're in a conversation with somebody and you've got that because I what you're describing to me is an absolutely perfect description of the modern world isolated autonomous individuals that everything about the world encourages us to see ourselves as autonomous individuals isolated separated and you you know that according to our belief that's absolutely contrary if we're made in God's image we're Trinitarian we were meant to be with people. So there's so much in the modern world that works against that. Our nature is to love others, to be loved. You know, and every there's so much about the modern world that encourages us out of that. And I think all of us know that from our lives. I know it. I think you all know it. Um, so here's my, here's my request. So the next time you're talking with somebody, instead of saying... You know, there's nothing to say and I can't say anything and I'm a private person and I'm fine with that. I would like you to think about the sorts of arguments that we've been, you know, mulling over in the last month with Lewis's, um, 
you know, theory of um, what the, not rehabilitation, but, um, you know, the, or uh, punishment, humanitarian, humanitarian idea, you know, that, that, that we, we have substituted a theory of curing for dessert, for rewards and punishments, and, you know, it's one of the reasons I went back to Boethius. Boethius gave us arguments, Tracy Robertson, <laughs> if you can hear my tone right now. Boethius gave us arguments, and so has Lee Suis Lewis. And, um, and they're not the same arguments, but they belong to a world in which there are objective truths, and they're both using, they're not appealing to faith at all. Both of them are using their powers of reason to raise questions too. So if you would do this for me, please, I'm pushing as gently as I can and as hard as I can. The next time you're with somebody and um, you're left with that feeling of being alienated from life, God, I'll never forget that phrase, Tracy, but, you know, that there's nothing to say, I'd like you to ask, to quickly go through the store of your memory, Boethius, Lewis, and see if there isn't a question you can ask, not argue, just a question you can raise in a spirit of friendship, prepared to walk away. You know, not to engage, but, but to raise a question that, that might take that person, you know, to go to a step, something, to, you know, to raise a question of himself, so that it's just not left there. Because you know my belief, my, my, if there's any purpose to what I've been doing for the last years, it's try to bring faith and reason together, and the, the greater thrust of it, at least on my part, has been with reason. You know, to, to show that reason is this great, great thing, and we can't give it up. Especially to a world that thinks it's based on it, when the way it uses reason, in my mind, is so irrational. So instead of leaving it, that I would ask you to just ask yourself, is there a question you can ask, you know, that goes, I don't know what it'll be because I don't know what the circumstances, but I don't want to let you off the hook saying, mm, you know, because I don't, I don't believe that's, I mean, you may not be able to do anything and, and you shouldn't feel bad, walk away and leave it alone. But I would, I would be really grateful if, you know, you find yourself in that situation and if you just raise a question and be ready to walk away if nothing happens. But don't leave it as if there's nothing to be done because sometimes asking questions will make an opening for something that, you know, may come out of it. We don't know. We don't know. That's my homework for you, Tracy. Okay? Okay. I, I love you for being as um, open as you are. Okay. Um, any other comments on abolition of man before we put it to rest? God, you guys are good. Sometimes. Hey, Bob. Yeah. Um, my question is, um, do y'all think that God has allowed technology to um, come into our lives and such? overtaking way to expose our sin. Um, and the reason I ask this is it um, comes from way back, I was, what, 13, 14 years old, and um, my mom and dad had a surprise, um, which was my brother, and um, my mom said I want to do some research about this Nielsen camera, 
uh, it was fairly new technology at the time, especially in the womb. And it was um, the movie called The Silent Scream. And then she was so surprised by what she had learned through that film, uh, the technology of the Nielsen camera in the womb showing fetal development, uh, that she had my dad sit down and watch it with her. And I was so grateful because that was the technology that saved my brother from being aborted. And, um, wow. and so I wonder if, like other things that might reveal our, you know, tendency toward addiction or self-glorification or other things that technology has uh, shown us to do, if um, it is just a good exposer um, of things we need to deal with. Let me ask you just, sorry, I'm, I'm not sure if I understood the spirit of it. Because when you, when you started, I, your example to me is, a, is a, an example of how good technology can be. That it, that it um, I, I wasn't thinking that it was saving your, your brother, but um, uh, where am I? Oh, you started by saying, is, I, I didn't hear, sorry, it was scrambled, Julie, but you started by saying something to the effect that, there's a good technology because it can make us aware of our sins or something like that. Is that right? What, can you and can you clarify okay. that? What's your or what's your the question you're asking? See, I guess the question um, is: Did that, that did that expose a sin? Um. Yes, because it actually showed what happens to a fetus during a, an abortion. Um, okay. And okay. that's what changed um, okay. my parents' okay. minds. Okay. Okay. Have you seen the movie Unplanned? No, I would like to. It's doing. I mean, it, it's um, Abby Johnson, who is with Planned Parenthood, who tells her story. Who right. who is with Planned Parenthood for eight years? I'm writing a book. That's how. Um, she was with Planned Parenthood for eight years without seeing a um, an abortion on a monitor, and happened to be called into a procedure room and witnessed, and was so so horrified. She had to leave the room and couldn't hold her feet. She had to fall down, um, just almost collapse and overwhelmed with what she saw. So I guess, I mean, my answer on the surface is, yeah, for sure. I'm not, you know, I, I, I look at, I'm not aware of the movie that you're talking about or the documentary. I, I know the film wasn't a hit in the box office because most of the world doesn't want to see that kind of film. You know, it, it right. was appealing to a Christian audience largely, so that technology can reveal, but it, it's like other, I mean, I think it's one of the points we're making, that it depends on who's using it and for what purposes. It can reveal a lot. I'm, I'm th you know, the, I'm thankful for movies that show us ourselves. That, I mean, it, I think it's one of the great things of, that's why I say there's a prophetic element to them, and so I would include all of those things in the same category. Right. It, it, it so often depends on the courage or the humility of the people, whether they can really, you know, fully look at the things, the bad things that we're capable of and the redeeming things that can come out of them. I get really Amen. bothered. I get really bothered when I watch a movie showing bad things about us that aren't answered. That's a movie I don't have much good to say about it, but... Let's turn to the play, because this is a play about something redeeming. I'm going to do something now, because I want to, um, I'm going to do something, because I, I want to I see if I can leave some time. I had wanted to go through the play, and 
um, do some readings. Um, let me just pick out a couple of lines to move us through the plot because I've got a question that I've got to present to you guys that to me is um, really important for the whole the whole Oristia. So let me just pick out a couple of scenes to root us in the play and then I've got a couple of major questions. You know, so you know that the background of this is the Iliad and the whole tradition of the Trojan War. You all have been around long enough to know the Trojan War took place around 1200, Homer's writing 750, 800, 400 years. He wasn't even present. So he was working off an oral tradition that had been passed on. And it's clear that that oral tradition varied. You know, that it, it, it took a different emphasis. It, it, it presented things differently according to the poet, according to the tradition. Homer gets it in 750-800 and it passes on from him. It doesn't get written down, I think, until the 6th century. It doesn't take a written form. And the written form that it takes is presumably a fairly reliable copy of what Homer did orally. So imagine Homer orally having memorized that poem <laughs> in memory, seeing it. So pitch like Odysseus in uh, Scaria with the Phaeacians, you know, with all the Phaeacians around, Odysseus in the center telling a story. Demodocus was the poet there. Remember, Demodocus told a story to the Phaeacians. He's the poet in the court. Chaucer was the poet in his court. Odysseus is sitting there telling a story. And that's an image we, we assume is um, representing what Homer would have done for his audience that the principal source of wisdom in the ancient world was poetry. It passed on traditions. So it was through them that people learned who they were, what they were, their origins, how they did things. That's why Homer spends so much time talking about training a horse or how to turn a chariot. Or So these traditions got passed down and they took various forms. Aeschylus is writing centuries later and he's working off a tradition that's already well established. So when he writes the story, the, the trilogy, the Oresteia, the Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides, he's working off um, that tradition, okay? But we know that Aeschylus um, was also a man we know something about in a way that's not true of Homer. Um, he was born in the 6th century, 525. He died 465, so into the 5th century. He was involved in several wars against the Persians when the Persians were attempting to take over the Ionian coast, the, you know, the, the Mideast coast, and take over Greek territories. So the Greek resisted them and um, fought several wars with the Persians. Aeschylus was in several of those wars, so he knew, he knew war. He was a veteran soldier. Um, he, he knew that he had to fight those wars. They had to be fought. Aeschylus was not a man to romanticize war the way some people did, as if we could get rid of wars. Because he knew that if Persia conquered Greece, Greece would become a, a subject nation, become subjugated to another power. They would have lost their freedom. Um, they would have been forced to do whatever another power would have asked them to do. They would have, they would have lost something of their humanity. 
So the Greeks fought against the Persians, were defeated by them. Athens was actually raised in one of the battles, but for the most part, they defeated them in a heroic way. And it's in some, it's in that sense that in some ways, Greece came into its own and through its own experiences became reached a level of awareness of the importance of political regimes in a way that wasn't true for other people, other nations. So they knew how important freedom was and he knew how important it was for a person to be able to make choices on his own. So out of those experiences came Plato and Aristotle, the great tragedians, Aeschylus, others. They knew that a regime that defended the freedom of the human person was better than a regime that was a tyrannous regime. Is that clear? It's so important to see this because something emerges in Greece at this time that we can't find going on anywhere else in the world. The sense of a political regime dedicated to freedom and, more importantly, the use of reason to defend that freedom. So somebody else is not going to tell you what to believe or what to think. They discovered that there was in this in reason a power for considering things, looking at the nature of things, and protecting a freedom, something inherently good in the human person. So out of that came Plato's Republic, Aristotle's politics, you know, all these major works that we've been alluding to all along. Um, so, um, hold on a second. Aeschylus also lived at a time when the Greek drama had already become a part of the Greek experience, except he did something that nobody had done before. Before Aeschylus, the drama generally consisted of a chorus and a person, maybe one or two people, but a chorus and people. He added other people who engaged with themselves and the chorus, um, and doing that made it possible for him to render a greater complexity to the story that he was showing, and more importantly, a greater subtlety of motives. Because by setting characters against each other, we could learn to see the differences between what motivated them. Is that clear? So his, his drama takes us in the direction of a greater exploration of man's interior. How what he's doing differs from somebody else and how the chorus differs from them. So there's this great movement forward in his drama. That, and it's interesting because you've heard me saying this. It's the poets who prepare the way for the philosophers, not the other way around. It's the poets who make something knowable intuitively. The philosophers pick it up and treat it conceptually. But what was there was first grasped by the poets intuitively. So Aeschylus, Sophocles, and then Plato and the pre-Socratics and Aristotle come after them. Um, okay, just a, a quick glance at some of the major themes. Um, you know that the, that the major theme is that there's this curse on the house of Atreus that goes back to what Tantalus did with his son. I'll come back to that in a moment. But the focus of the play is this curse that runs through a family 
that there's something passed on from the past that gets carried over and it becomes a source of problems for a family. Now hold on, I'm, I'm, there's so much to cover here and I want to be really careful. So bear with me please if you will. You remember from the very beginning when we started doing the Iliad and the Odyssey and the other epics that every one of those works began in medius race, in the midst of things. In the midst of things was not a mathematical center. It's not math. It's not science. Um, this is poetry. In the middle of things, in medius race means in the midst of something. So you're in your family and you're thinking everything's going okay and you suddenly learn that Uncle James ran off with a woman or your son's been doing drugs. Something happens that you didn't see and you're in the midst of things and there's this great problem around you and suddenly you have to deal with it. Okay, That's been a constant in everything we've read. Iliad, or Homer, Virgil, Chaucer, Shakespeare, doesn't, Dante, it doesn't matter, Faulkner. Faulkner's go down Moses is right in the middle of things. And then in the story we're taken back to beginnings to get the backstory to fill things out. So Aeschylus is already working in a tradition in which this great war took place and these traditions are being handed on. And um, in, in this one, it begins with Agamemnon returning home. So we're in the midst of thing, a war has taken place, and um, a king is coming home expecting that he will be welcomed, he can restore order at home because he's been away for 10 years, and suddenly nothing turns out the way he thought it would happen. Um, so one of the major themes is a curse running through a family. Um, but what happened in the past affects the present. And I want to underscore that as strongly as I can because you know that that's been a theme in everything we've read. In Homer, Homer could almost not present a battle without going into the genealogy of his heroes. He knew that there was always a past that had to be protected. That's why he did the story. He went back to the Trojan War. That's number one. Number two, the Trojan War was not just about a, a battle between East and West. It was about the destruction of a city or a civilization. The reason it was as important as it was is because a city is destroyed, raised to the ground. It's a little bit like Hiroshima. I can't say that strongly enough. And in this, in, in the Iliad, you know that the importance of it is great because it's not just a city that's being destroyed, it's a civilization. All the Asian peoples have joined Priam in this fight against the Greeks. So it's really a, a battle between East and West and fundamental differences between them. Something's emerging in Achilles and what happens in the West that allows them to triumph. So something's emerging. But the cost of it is the destruction of a civilization. So the human beings can create these great worlds, but they can also destroy them. Aeschylus is aware of that, so when he opens the Oresteia and the Agamemnon, Agamemnon's going to return home, we get the backstory of what took place in Troy, and what we learn is Troy was destroyed, but the way the Achaeans did it, overdid it, they offended the gods, and lots of them are going to be destroyed on the way home. 
because what they did, even, even though it had the support of the gods, went way beyond what the gods did. They were blasphemous. They did things they shouldn't have done. Lots of them didn't get home. Agamemnon is one of them, but as soon as he gets home, something's going to happen to him. So the curse of a family, the destruction of a city, the wounds of the past. Remember in Eliot's poems, um, the, the danger for us is to live too much in the past or too much in the future. Christ, Christ answered all of these things. The Jewish sense, it's in the story of Job, to believe that the problems in our age are the results of the sins of our fathers. Christ came to do away with all of that. The, um, the, the people can't continue to live in the past, that there's an answer to these problems. But here in this Greek world, we're in a world in which people keep trying to escape the past and can't do it. Um, the order of sins. When the Greeks leave Greece for Troy, um, they have to propitiate the gods. They have to make a sacrifice. It's asked of them. Um, so Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. It's, it's, a, it's a play in itself. It's a story in itself. And because of the sacrifice, they're freed to go, and then they spend the next 10 years um, um, trying to destroy Troy and, and get um, Helen back. But you've got different orders of sins, or whatever we're going to call them. Agamemnon kills his daughter. Um, Clytemnestra is going to kill her husband because of that act. Is there a difference between what he does and what she does? If it is, how do we look at it? How does, how does Iskas look at it? Um, at the center of the play um, is this young woman, Cassandra, who's um, Agamemnon's mistress. He's taken into the house by Clytemnestra. She's going to kill him. While Cassandra's outside, she looks at the house and she sees that this is the house of Atris where the original curse took place. Um, and she sees, she sees immediately in front of her that curse being enacted. The children being dismembered and served up. And shortly after that, she sees Clytemnestra actually kill Agamemnon. So she has a prophetic power of sight um, and nobody listens to her. Well, the, the, the people are shocked, but nobody acts on what, they, what she sees. So she has a power of sight nobody else has, and yet it's practically useless in this world, okay? Those are some of the, those are some of the major themes um, um, of the play. I'm, I want to just read a couple of passages to highlight one thing before... I ask my question. Um, so I've got to find it. Um, I want to just flesh this out for a minute more and then. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Less. Sorry. It's um, 
here on page, in our book, page 71, it's about line 1140. Um, Cassandra has just descended from the chariot, um, and she says on 70, um, or 68, what house is this? The core says on 69, the house of Atreide. If you understand not that, I can tell you, and so much at least is true, no, but a house that God hates, guilty within it, kindred blood shed, torture of its own, the shambles from in butchery, the dripping floor. Um, it goes on, but here's the passage I want to get to on page 71. Cassandra and the chorus are engaging each other, and suddenly the chorus says, page 71, You are possessed of God, mazed at heart, to sing your own death song, the wild lyric, as in clamor for Itis, Itis over and over again, her long life of tears, weeping forever, grieves the brown nightingale. It's referring um, again to um, the, at, the, the, the Atreus story. Oh, for the nightingale's pure song and a fate like hers, with fashion of beating wings, the gods clothed her about, and a sweet life gave her, and without lamentation, but mine is the sheer edge of the tearing iron. Um, hold on a second if I can, sorry. Um, sorry, you guys, give me a minute. There are two myths behind this story. One of them, you know, is the myth of Tantalus. Tantalus was a man who was favored by the gods, and when this is crucial. He was favored by the gods and, and invited to share a banquet at their table. It's like a f um, foreshadowing, not the, it's like an intimation of what happens with Christ in inviting his followers with him to share the banquet here on earth and eventually in heaven. He's invited to share a feast with the gods, and at some point he, it's as if being favored makes him presumptuous and to test the God's knowledge or out of curiosity to see if they understand that is an act that really is presumptuous he cuts up his son Pelops and feeds him to the gods when the gods discover it they they punish him by sending him to hell Tantalus is that figure in hell who's always trying to eat and can't and trying to quench his thirst and can that curse gets passed on to his sons Atreus and and um, um, and um, oh, sorry, somebody help me out here though. Here. You have it. Um, if you guys have got it, you know it, you'll see it. It's um, um, no, it's not giving it to me. Um, it's eat. It's. It's Thyestes. Who's the? It's, it's. Sorry, I'm getting. Sorry. Atreus and Thyestes were brothers. Yeah, it's Thyestes. It's Thyestes and Atreus. They have a quarrel, and At, um, Atreus has an affair. Theseus, or one of them, has an affair with the other, and to get back, I think Atreus takes the sons of Thyestes, Thyestes chops them up, and feeds them to his brother. So his brother eats his children without knowing it. When he discovers um, um, 
there's this hatred that gets passed on and this violence in the family. In the, um, in the, bless it, in the Philomena myth, um, pro, pro, oh God, God, that can't, Procini. pro, pro, Procini. no, it's not, sorry, not God, this is God, Procne wants to visit her sister and asks her husband to go get her, so her husband goes to get her, but he lusts for her and rapes her, tells her not to say anything, and she refuses, and he cuts out her tongue. Um, she tells the story to Procne, her sister, in a tapestry, and when her sister finds out, she takes the sons of her son, her son, the son of her and their husband, her husband, cuts them up and serves her son cut up to the husband. So here in this passage that I just read in the Agamemnon, there's this allusion to that. So there are these two myths of parents chopping up their kids and feeding them to themselves. And the, remember, it began with um, um, Tantalus chopping up his son. Um, um, Tyrius does it, or, or Procne does it with Tyrius, her husband. Um, so this curse goes on in the house until this time, and it, gets, it begins to get worked out here. Now let me stop and gather my thoughts. To just quickly summarize the story, you know that it begins with the watchman waiting for news of Troy's destruction. He finally gets it. Clytemnestra comes out a number of times, engages with the um, chorus. A herald comes, and the herald relates the story of Troy's destruction, that the um, Achaeans um, became so overwhelmed with their power that they raised the city, they destroyed the temples, the altars, the gods. So they committed sacrileges. Um, it's made clear that the destruction of Troy was deserved because when Paris took Helen, they violated um, a law of the gods in what they did. So um, the, the, the city was appropriately destroyed, but the Greeks went too far. So there are all these crimes of the past that keep getting carried forward. Um, when the herald describes it, he, he makes clear that the, that the Achaeans on the way home are almost destroyed, all of them, at sea. Very few of the ships get through. He describes the ocean as a burial ground. So only a few get through. Menelaus does not get home. We know that from the Odyssey. Remember, Menelaus is off in Egypt, and so is Odysseus. He's, he's off in his wanderings. So at this point in the story, Agamemnon knows that most of the, most of the ships were destroyed. He's there. The, the dearest ones to him, Menelaus and Odysseus, are not home. So it's a dark homecoming. When he comes home, um, hold on just one second. Um, when he comes home, the first thing he does is announce to the people that he wants to have a meeting. Um, on page 60, now, in the business of the city and the gods, we must ordain full conclave of all citizens and take our counsel. We shall see what element is strong and plan that it shall keep its virtue still, 
But that which must be healed, we must use medicine or burn or amputate with kind intention, take all means at hand that might beat down corruption's pain. So to the king's house and the home about the hearth, I take my way with greeting to the gods within who sent me forth and who have brought me home once more. My prize was conquest. May it never fail again. Clytemnestra um, comes out and greets him, and you know what happens after that. She takes him in and kills him. Shortly after, um, she and um, Thyestes come out and take control of the city. Aegisthus. Or uh, um Take control of the city and threaten the chorus with harm if they don't fall in line. So we're watching a city that's been weakened by the absence of a king for 10 years, being taken over and um, moved in the direction of a tyranny. So that's the action of the play. Now I've got two main questions, three, well, three, actually, three main questions. One is, whose crime is worse, Agamemnon's or Clytemnestra's? Because remember, um, Agamemnon had to sacrifice his daughter to leave for the war. She's going to kill her husband, Agamemnon, for that crime. There's an element of prophecy in the play. Cassandra sees it all happening. When she was in Troy, she was given this prophetic power, but even the Trojans wouldn't listen to her. If they had listened to her, they might have been spared, but they didn't. So Agamemnon is making it clear that um, some people have a power for seeing that others don't have, but generally speaking, people don't listen to them. Um, and the, the other one I want to wait on because for me it's the, the major, but those, those are the first two. The, and if you could place this in the context of a war. Aeschylus is, does not romanticize war. He knows that battles have to be fought. He's not sentimentalizing anything. That battle had to be waged because if it, if it didn't, the Greeks would have been made into a subject people. Um, so he's, he's very clear-sighted about the effects of war. War is not a good thing, but he's also making clear um, there's very little but evil to come out of war. Almost everything that happens is bad. So he's very sober about all of this, but let me take those two questions, then I've got a, a major, major question to ask you guys that's, that's going to have to do with the whole trilogy. But just let me take those first two. Who's, whose sin is greater? Agamemnon's or Clytemnestra's and why? And the other one is this element of prophecy. What is, what is Aeschylus doing with Cassandra in this, in this work? What, what, what's her importance as a figure? How does she function in this play, in the action of this play? Can we take the first one? What's, who's, who's, Whose action was worse? Agamemnon's or Clytemnestra's? Oh, good for you. Thanks. Fred, ya go. <laughs> I am fairly confident that no one's going to agree with this, but... <laughs> 
I, I would say Agamemnon's sin is worse. And here's why. He killed his daughter to rescue Helen, who was complicit in Paris taking her to Troy. So, yeah, I, 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 you know, um, Artemis was upset at Agamemnon because he killed a deer and told him, okay, if you want to go sail off to Troy, you're going to have to sacrifice your daughter. I would never have personally made that decision. Uh, Clytemnestra, uh, to me, uh, was avenging her her daughter's death. Um, but you know she she wasn't without her own problems because she was having an affair with Aegisthus. Uh, uh, in Agamemnon's absence, so you know she wasn't exactly, you know, innocent in her own right. But if I if I look at the two, I I have to go with Agamemnon. Let me before I turn to anybody else because I I just want to go back to your opening comment because I thought it was interesting because you began by saying nobody's going to agree with me. Take the other side, because you ought, for you to say that means you're aware, I think, you're aware that somebody else would say or differ with you. What If you had to imagine what that argument would be, what would it be? I mean, what are you answering with your argument? <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things where everybody's done it. You, you, kind of, you kind of get a sense of the professor in your class, and so you know what answer they want. <laughs> And I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's you, but in general, if I was if I was in a literature class and I was taking this course, and my teacher asked me this question, I suspect that the answer that they would want is uh, Clinton Estra. You big cop out! I I'm going to mute you on that one. <laughs> because you know, basically, if you look at it, she she kills her husband. Uh, you know, she she claims that it's because it's about her daughter, but you know, there's there's a lot going on underneath. One of which is she just wants the power. Yeah, and I mean, how she stands off against the chorus when they start debating, uh, you know, what she's done. Uh, she's a very strong person. I mean, she's kind of Lady Macbeth like <laughs> strength, right? In, right. In how she deals with the chorus. Yeah. So I think the play sets her up before before we get to the next two pieces. I think the play kind of sets her up for the audience to be sympathetic to her. Wow. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, because of uh, you know what Agamemnon did and and the reason for which he did it. Yeah. But I as you as I see the the way the the play wraps up. You know, the unraveling, if you will, you get the sense that, um, at least in this first part of the trilogy, um, Aeschylus wants the, the 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 audience to to maybe sympathize with uh, Clintonestra. Wow! At, at wow! 
Interesting. Jeannie, what's your response um, to my question? Who's the, who's, who, who's, I don't want to use the word wrong because I don't want to call it. Whose action was more deserving of criticism or blame, if I can put it that way? Do you agree with Fred? I think I think I do agree with Fred that um, wow. Agamemnon sacrificed his daughter because the gods demanded it, is the way I understood it, um, in order to give him the wind that he needed to sail off to fulfill his promise that he had made to his friends um, and, you know, avenge the the stealing of Helen. Uh, and I think Clyde and Nestor was, I, I think I agree with, with, I think I understood uh, Fred to say that he he believes that she she kind of uses the idea that she's avenging her daughter's murder, but as the reason why she's going to kill her husband Agamemnon. But really, she's in love with somebody else. She's been unfaithful to her husband, and she wants the power for herself. Wait, I th I I I. I'm getting confused now because I, because I thought Fred was saying that he, he thought Agamemnon's actions were more deserving of blame. But the way you're describing, and you said you agreed with him, but the, what you're describing now makes yeah, it seem like what? Maybe I misunderstood Fred. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I think Clytemnestra is more deserving of blame. Yeah. Flesh, well, do you have anything to add for to the reasons you just gave? No. No. Okay. Anybody else want to um, come in on this? Tracy. No. No, because I haven't read all the way, and so I don't. I can't visualize Clytemestra's, you know, motivations or her tone, or yeah. Sue, do you have a? You want to come in on this? I'm in the same boat as Tracy. I've only read about two thirds of it, so um, I, I mean, I've seen some of it, but not all. The thing that <laughs> I guess the question is is that you're asking is Agamemnon's murder of his daughter, sacrifice of his daughter, whichever you want to give. Is that worse than a wife killing her husband? Right, right, right. But Agamemnon did something or participated in something. He started out listening to the gods. And what he did was, I agree, because the gods ordered it. It seemed whimsical to me. It seemed a little over the top. But, okay, that's what it was. But then he didn't follow through with that in the way they destroyed Troy. And they destroyed all the gods and the everything in Troy. They had to go to war, but then he overdid it. So I'm a little torn, but that isn't really the question you're asking. So I need to read the whole thing. You do. You do. I, I hope all you guys find time. Any, I'm, I want to get to this other question. Any, anybody want to offer any thoughts on prophecy? Because I, I want to...
I'm going to explode things here in a second. Um, I want to any any thoughts on Cassandra's role? Why why Aeschylus puts her in the play? What's her function? Fred, go ahead. Well, as as I understood the story, she was she was cursed in a way by Apollo because Apollo granted her, and I guess that was kind of Apollo's thing, was to to grant the power of being able to see. Right. See. Right. And but then he 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 wanted her, uh, wanted wanted her to, you know, to marry him or have a child with him. I guess is the appropriate, uh, you know, create a demigod. Right. Right. You know. Right. Right. And she refused. Right. And as a result of that refusal, uh, he cursed her with uh, no one ever believing her. Right. So she and you could see the exchange all the way through with the chorus. They never. She was giving him. They were. She was giving them all this sight, and they were overwhelmed by it, but never quite bought into it. So to me, um, it was. It was almost a, a, a curse on her, a cross, if you will, for her to bury, but. To, to carry because she had this great ability, but it was painful for her because no one ever believed her. Fred, take what you because you're you're right on. I mean, your description of her is really completely faithful to the play. Put that in terms of the large action. Why 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 does he why does that even why does he have her? The question that I'm asking is: You got a play about Agamemnon returning home. The war is over. The the city has suffered. It has is not had a leader. Everybody knows how powerful this woman is. It's it, it seems to me it's hard to read it without being aware that people know something's wrong. That they see her as a powerful woman, but they know that there's something dark going on. It's not it's not just the curse, but the curse is there. There's something more. And she kills him, and then she and I guess those come out at the end and take control of the city and. Um, cower the people. Um, so you've got you've got a direct threat at something more democratic, if I can call it that right now. What's the function of this woman um, having this power of sight in the middle of this action? What? Why is it important? What does she bring to this story that's necessary? What will we lose without her? I I think she sets up the peripatia myself. As, as she goes through that site, we we see parts of the play unfold in a sense, things that we didn't necessarily know before uh, come into play. She 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 reviews basically all of the events of the past that led to this point and then sees into the future what are going to be the results of those actions. So for me, she's setting up, she sets up the turn. So that, the, to me, the turn is when um, uh, Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon and Cassandra. And so she's setting all that up so that we, you know, we, we begin to see and, and are carried through that turn uh, after 
Clymenestra does her thing. Yeah, let me. Yeah, yeah let me. Yeah, no, let me just add this to it because I don't think it's just seeing the future, what's about to be in the recognition. Because I thought what you said is right on. I think what's what's going on has to do with seeing and the work that we've done. In the it sort of amazes me in the work that we've done. Remember our talk about the apophatic of of what's not there and what's there, mm-hmm. and how often poetry is multi-leveled, that in an event in the present, something of the past is present at the same time. Um, so we've, we've seen instances often where whatever's taking place in the present moment involves a reenactment or an actual presence of event that took, past, took place ages before. So the scene that Cassandra offers the play is not just preparing for the Peripatia. In a sense, she is. Because what she sees when she points to the Hautov is she's actually describing the kids being mutilated. It's immediately before her. So she sees, so this is like Boethius' description of God. She sees the past as its present. And subsequent to that, I mean, immediately following it, she sees Clytemester kill. So her powers of sight are multi-level in a sense. Her seeing extends beyond what other people can see because she sees the way the, the past plays out in the present. It would be a little bit like what goes on, let's say, in therapy. I, I mean, I'm not a therapist, I don't, but I'm trying to find a contemporary example. If somebody were in therapy, a therapist would want to be able to bring something from the past that had been repressed in... Um, so that that person could be freed of whatever, I mean, I, a lot of this stuff I, I, I don't subscribe to, but, but there's a truth to that, that, that if, if you cover something up and don't deal with it, and it, when it's playing out in your life, it's important to learn to see that, even if it's painful. So Cassandra's sight offers us a way of showing that that past, which has been relegated, I mean, you know, the, the curse that began with Tantalus and his son, and then Atreus and his brother, is still present. It would be a little bit, and let me, because I want to, I want to go to Fred's point, because it's, I want to get to this major question that I've got. It would be a little bit like all of us saying in baptism, the sin of Adam is washed away, and throughout our lives, as we commit sins, we reenact the sin of Adam and carry it forward. It's one of the reasons we go to. Confession, that's one of the reasons we go to communion. That our belief, our faith is that that sin that we've inherited is something with God's help we can wash away so that we can become more like him. That was Boethius' argument. That's the center of our faith. Let me go to two things because I want to I ask this question and they sort of pick up with what Fred said and it, it's it's it's. It gives me a way of disagreeing and laying something out here about Cassandra and um, Agamemnon. Remember that in the, in the ancient world, it was understood that human beings could fall in love with gods and gods could fall in love with humans, and certain things happened because of that. I'm sure all of us, can, even if we don't know people, I'm sure all of us can imagine some young person growing up falling absolutely in love with God to the exclusion of everything else. And what the implication would, of that would be for that person's life. Some women go into orders. Some men go into orders. 
because that the devotion of that love is so great. Sometimes it's not. It can have perverse consequences. But it happens. Um, we also know that God asks for sacrifices. God himself gave up his own son, and God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. So we have in our own tradition examples of God asking for sacrifices. Actually, it involved a concrete body of son, Abraham's son. And I've asked this question before. What would Sarah's response have been to that, you know, that moment? I, I want to I try to put the, the, the play, at least as I'm, I'm trying to be as faithful as I can to it, into perspective for this larger question that I've got with you guys. And I'm going to have to leave it with you. We're not going to have time. Um, what Agamemnon does in sacrificing Iphigenia is in obedience to the gods. There is no duplicity. None. When Suzanne and I were talking about it, I, I, so, I'm sorry, I wish I'd recorded it. Her way of saying it is that when men do wrong, they're just up front. When Agamemnon does this, he's up front. He's not hiding anything. He's, in, he's acting in obedience to the gods. You can quarrel with that, but there's, there's a rationale that actually dovetails with our own faith. He sacrifices his daughter for a larger good. Um, what, what Clytemnestra does um, could not be more radically different. She lies, she blasphemes all the time. She constantly swears to the gods. When she's talking to the poor, to the core, she even she keeps saying, "I want my dear lord home. I want my husband home. I don't want anything to happen to him." If you've read the play and you see the ironies of it, there's no way to hear her speaking those words without hearing her say, "I want him home, so I can kill him." The irony of her words through the whole play are razor sharp, and they're blasphemous. She uses the gods. She uses the men. She uses Aegisthus. He uses her. I mean, the both of them are in a power play. Her motive is vengeance. So the difference between Clytemnestra and Agamemnon are radical, absolutely radical. And I think the play makes that abundantly clear. I, I, I think if you read it closely, you'd have a hard time coming away with another reading, but... Let me go to this question, because to me it's a much larger question, and it's much more troubling. So let me lay this out. You know that when the Herald is describing the Achaeans coming home, and so many of the ships are destroyed, and when Cassandra is describing the rooftops, both of them are referring to the Furies. The Furies are feminine. They're not masculine, they're feminine. Say what you will about Agamemnon, he was acting in obedience to the gods. Clytemnestra is acting as if she resembles the Furies in some ways. There's an emotional vengeance, a spite and hatred that's really deep in her. So here's my question. I just read that line. I, I, we don't have time to read more, but if you read more, you'd see that Agamemnon is a really good man. Um, whatever his failings as a king, I mean, the, the, the Achaeans went overboard. How much of that was in his control? I, I, but, you know, I, I want to I try to just stay with broad brushstrokes for a second. He's a good man. He wants to put his city back in order. He's very kind. When his wife tells him to walk on the purple, he refuses. He declines. He says it's only for the gods. Everything that Aeschylus does shows this man to be a good man. It couldn't be more different from Homer. Because you know in Homer... 
Agamemnon's a jerk. I mean, he's just not a good king. So my question is this, and it goes to the other plays, and I'm gonna give the I'm gonna do something tonight I don't like doing, but I'm gonna do it. Agamemnon's a good man. Aeschylus is doing everything he can to show how I don't know the word evil Clytemnestra is. It, the contrast could not be greater. She's hypocritical, she's lying, she's deceitful, she, um, she wants to display her power, she's using Agisthos. Um, why, why does Aeschylus do this? Why does he present that contrast so starkly? And why the affinities with the Furies? The Furies are feminine. Okay? Now, bear with me for a minute, because I, 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 I want to try to flesh this out as much as I can. Remember that Eve's sin was tricked. She was tricked, whatever, whatever that means. Um, Adam disobeyed because he chose her. We know Milton's treatment about Eve. I'm, I'm, I'm not altogether comfortable with it, but we know that she was tricked. And the sense we have in the Bible is her pride that the appeal was she could be like a god. The, the sin of Tantalus was blasphemy, presuming on the gods. That's where the, the whole thing started, this presumption on the gods that he was given this favored place that played out in his wanting to cut up his son and feed it to him. So interestingly for me, the, the, the curse that begins this whole thing is an exact inversion of the Eucharist. Where did Aeschylus get that? It exactly turns it upside down. And the incentive for it is presumption, blasphemy. Agamemnon kills his daughter, but it's in a spirit of obedience, it's sacrifice. Clytemnestra does it in presumption, in hatred and vengeance and spite. Now here's why I'm going. The Furies are feminine. In the next play, Orestes is going to come home, he's going to kill his mother. And the Furies are going to be pre present to Clytemnestra. So there's a link there. They're feminine in nature. Now remember, Aeschylus went to war. He saw war three times with the Persians. He's, he's been in war. He's seen the evil that war can do. He knows what he can do. It can do. He's showing Argos suffering from the absence of a king and what's going on with his wife at home. What's going on in the next play is Orestes is going to return home to avenge his father's death. And it's going to be on the basis of something Apollo told him to do. That's going to be crucial for the next play. That he, he gets this revelation from Apollo, the god of light, who gives sight. He's going to kill his mother, and the Furies are going to pursue him. So the Furies are present in the Agamemnon. They're present in the Libation Bears. Libation Bears um, imply the Furies, these dark forces that are at work. When we get to the final play, we're going to shift from Argos to Athens. Now remember, we've talked about that shift before when we did Chaucer. Chaucer was going from Thebes to Athens because Thebes was this noble city. Argos is this noble city. It's got a noble aristocratic line. It's dying without a king, and Clytemnestra and Agustus are going to take it over. So the Furies are very present in the Agamemnon. They're very present in 
the libation berries. When we get to the end in um, the Eumenides, we're moving to Athens, and it's in Athens that a courtroom scene is going to take place involving Orestes, whether he's going to be executed or not for murdering his mother. Apollo and Athena are going to come together, and Athena is going to win the case. She's going to mollify, she's going to assuage those furies. So that's because of something a, a feminine goddess did to assuage, to answer these furies that brings Athens into existence. So what's happening in the third play is another shift from a noble city, not from Thebes to Athens, but from Argos to Athens, in which something new is going to happen. So we're moving from a view in which these chthonic dark forces that are feminine in nature are going to have their way, that is it's going to continue this cycle that's been going on for generations, except it's going to go to Athens and because of what Athena does with Apollo, it's going to be resolved. So my question is, all these feminine dark forces, which are really sinister, Clytemnestra is a really sinister person, but they're going to be answered by Athena. So wisdom is going to be presented as feminine. And it's going to be the basis for this new kind of city, unlike any other city that's ever existed in the world. So what is Aeschylus showing us? And in the middle of this first play is this woman who has these prophetic powers, Cassandra, that nobody sees. So if I can put it more sort of baldly to try to clarify it, what is his view of power in the way men use it, in the way in which women use it? What is he saying about prophetic seeing and ultimately a wisdom that's feminine in Athena? Because he's looking at something dark that's in a cycle that keeps repeating. It gets passed on from family to family. It travels through a family. We, know, we all know those things. Christ knew them. What's Aeschylus showing us um, in this shift? And why, why this radical contrast between Agamemnon, who's presented as a pretty decent guy, and um, Clytemnestra, who is close to demonic, and the Furies, and then all that happens. Let me just leave it at that, okay? Unless anybody wants to make a quick stab because we're past time, but there's a... So we've got to look at the action of each play. This is the Agamemnon. Then we're going to have the libation bearers. Then we're going to have the Eumenides. But we also have to look at the, the, the trilogy as a whole because the trilogy as a whole is moving from this heroic world in which this dark cycle keeps repeating itself, this curse, but it's finally answered. What's he doing in the way that he sets up this first play between Agamemnon and Clytemnestra? Because the difference between them is so stark. Um, I think I should probably leave it because it looks like some of you need to finish the play. We will not be able to deal with these questions if you guys don't read. They're short. All I can do to encourage you guys, they're short plays, they're not long. But the three of them together make a remarkable statement about something coming into existence in Athens that 
never existed before um, dealing with very dark forces and a wisdom which is feminine so there's something really important for us to look to okay any questions you guys have before we leave I'd, I'd rather hold off discussion but any questions you guys want to add to these it's a really important trilogy I'm glad we're doing it if anything it should give us a, a greater reason for celebrating Christmas <laughs> um, um, it's it's a pretty it's looking at pretty dark things, and, and I can say this quite honestly. I mean, I, I've tried to underscore the darkness. Christ answers them all. You know, but I, I, I'm going to say, I'll, I'll, I'll try to defend it the next couple of classes. I'm going to say that Aeschylus had an intimation of Christ. That there's something beyond power that the world doesn't know um, that takes the form of a wisdom it only comes through suffering and in his mind it's feminine it's rare um, and it answers um, these awful awful forces so the the trilogy together make up um, an extraordinary action about something at the beginning of western civilization and i'll go even farther i think it's something that's always in danger of being overthrown and, and i think there's lots going on in our world right now that's that's um, you know close to reenacting what we're seeing and what's going on in this play. So that may be too dark, but <laughs> any any questions or comments before we leave? I hope you guys read the play. Let's plan to get together. It's on the fourth. Mm -hmm. I want to wish all of you I guys. I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Yeah, I want to wish all you guys uh, a holy. <laughs> Christmas, just um, um, all of you have a good, from the bottom of my heart, all of you have a good Advent. Let it be a good Advent of going to the desert with John. That was our reading last weekend, to go to the desert, give up things, find Christ, um, find out who we are. So have a good Advent and let Christmas be a great blessing for all of you guys, okay? And for you as well. Thanks, thanks. God bless you all. Have a Thank good you. have a good advent and a good Christmas, okay? Good night. See you guys. See you next year. Okay. <laughs> uh.